If you can't get away, there are some fun ways to explore the world at home. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how one mom in Tulsa introduces her family to different foods from around the world every night. We had an international perspective, even though we were not able to travel. We'll look at the after-dinner customs in Italy that keep everybody lingering at the table. An American might say, wow, I'm feeling a bit full. But an Italian will say, oh, absolutamente, you need to have a digestivo. This is exactly the perfect finish to the dinner for you, and you must try it. Learn what food they're most proud of in Spain. Italians, they have better gelato. French, they have better cheese. But we have the best ham. And explore the culinary traditions of Scandinavia. In the middle of Norway, you have something it's called the rakfisk which is a fermented trout. Traditional doesn't always mean that it tastes good. Get a taste of the world in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Here at Travel with Rick Steves, our hearts are heavy in the wake of the horrifying events in Paris on November 13th. The victims and their families are in our thoughts and prayers as we try to make sense of the violence that shook a city that's beloved by so many of us and whose people hold a precious place in so many of our most treasured travel memories. Of course, tragedies like this raise questions about how should we react. For me, there are two fundamental concerns. What's safe? And what is the appropriate response to terrorism? On the question of safety, I believe there's an important difference between fear and risk. Paris will be no more dangerous now than it was the day before that terrible Friday the 13th. I also believe that security in Paris and throughout Europe will be heightened in response to this attack. And on the question of the proper response to terrorism, I believe we owe it to the victims of this act not to let the terrorists win. And we do that by being terrorized. That's exactly the response they're hoping for. Sure, it's natural for our emotions to get the best of us. But especially given the impact of sensational commercial media coverage these days, we need to respond intelligently and rationally. In 2004, Madrid suffered a terrorist bombing in its metro, which killed 191 people and injured 1,800. London suffered a similar terrorist bombing in 2005 in its tube system, killing 52 and injuring 700. These societies tightened their security, got the bad guys, and carried on. Paris will, too. Paris is a city of 2 million people. Europe is a continent of about 500 million but I'm sure that many Americans will cancel their trips there because of an event that killed about 150. The irony of this is that they'll be staying home in a country of about 300 million that loses more than 10,000 people a year on its streets to gun violence. Again, our thoughts and prayers go out to the people of Paris, to the victims, and to their loved ones. And it remains my firmly held belief that the best way for Americans to fight terrorism is to keep on traveling. It's always fun to explore the different kinds of food and drinks people enjoy in other places, even if it might take a little getting used to. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll find out why people in Spain are so enthusiastic about their special kind of ham and why they think it's the best in the world. We'll also explore the culinary traditions of the Scandinavian countries, where for generations, comfort food has helped the Nordic peoples endure the long, dark winter. We'll also hear why going out for a meal in Italy is often the evening's entertainment, where the after-dinner customs can keep you lingering at the table and enjoying the company of friends. And if you just can't get away, we'll hear how you can bring the world to your family by preparing dishes from every country in the world. When I go to Spain, I have a ritual. I'm not really there until I crunch into a good bocadillo jamón, a ham sandwich, believe it or not, in the most remote and forlorn little truck stop or way in a mountain village tavern or some little town bar. You can always count on one thing. There's a good, hearty ham sandwich waiting for you. The Spaniards really appreciate their jamón. We're going to talk about Spanish ham right now, and we're joined by Federico Garcia Barroso from Madrid and Francisco Gloria. From Pamplona. Federico and Francisco, thanks for joining us. 
Thank, Thank you. you. So, did you understand my my feeling about Hamon that I, I just shared? I perfectly feel it. I mean, right now I'm in Washington. I only have one dream. Hamon. Come on, I need to go back home to have Hamon. We have ham here in the United States. Well, you have prosciutto. So now that there's no Italians listening, <clears throat> it's not as good. Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's a fact. I mean, you go to France and they put oh jambon de Bayon. <clears throat> Come on, you have to be kidding. <laughs> it's good. It's decent. You know, if you really need it, you can have it. But it's not jamón. Jamón is like a religion for us. It's like, I have a friend who's vegetarian. He says, I'm a vegetarian except for jamón, which is big, by the way, if you don't know. <laughs> I, I can understand. Hey, uh, Federico, what do you think about jamón in Spain? What does it mean to you? <laughs> I know actually some vegetarians that they just eat vegetables and jamón, you know. Mm-hmm. With all my respect to Italians and French, you know, they have, Italians, they have better gelato, French, they have better cheese, but we have the best ham, you know. We talk basically about the race of the animal, a black pig that we call that black hoof, okay, mm-hmm. and the way we feed the animal with those acorns, okay, no chemical products. And then you get that ham carpaccio, which is very thin, darker, more salted, and tasty, very tasty, you see. And that is really unique, habugo. When we say, hey, 5J, J, habugo, 5J ham means like a kind of five-star hotel, you see. And that is the best one. So what is the five-star jamón? The 5J habugo, especially there are several regions in Spain. Mm -hmm. Those pigs are mostly, you know, happily living in uh, western Spain next to Portugal. Some of them are in Portugal. So they're happy, they're running around free. Exactly. What do they feed the best? Acorns, nothing more than that. That's all they eat. Exactly. Now, when I go to a bar or a a deli in Madrid, in fact, there's a famous place, the Museo de Ham, or something, Mm -hmm. the the Museum of Ham, and it's Mm -hmm. like a big bar that sells. If you were a vegetarian, you'd walk in there and it's a nightmare because you got ham hocks hanging from the (laughs) ceiling, hundreds of ham hocks hanging Mm -hmm. overhead. And I noticed that there's many different prices you can pay. And mm-hmm. I'm, you know, a budget traveler and I want to get a good value. There's mm-hmm. one There's one thing that I will go top end on the menu for, and that's ham, because you really notice a different, mm-hmm. a yes. completely different experience. The ham, you can have the normal basic ham. It's going to be like 10 euros for a kilo. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't need that. Make an experience out of it. Life is too short yes. to have mediocre I mean, ham. You know, I have three kids. If you bake a sandwich for them with that cheap one, it's like, that. You Your kids are, are ham snubs? The, in Spain, everybody's like... But, but if you're from the United <laughs> States and you go and you try one and the other, you become so a I, ham snub. Let's challenge our travelers when they go to Spain to order two little tapas. One will be the yeah. cheap ham and one will be the expensive ham. Can you even look at the expensive ham and see it? What do you hmm. see that's different? In, in the expensive one, it's going to be a little bit more shiny. The thing is that the fat, it is not the ham and then on top of it, the fat. The fat is going to be in the middle of the meat. So it's going to be a little bit shiny there. It's going yeah, to, it when you listens. put it in your mouth, it melts the fat. Mm-hmm. So in all your mouth is like completely incredible flavor that lasts like for three minutes. Let me tell Americans that we, what we are describing, Francisco, we basically talk about serrano ham and iberico. No? Serrano and Iberian ham is actually uh-huh. the top quality one, okay? Uh-huh. Serrano is just ordinary ham. Basic ham. Yeah, like the Italian one, like the French one. I was <laughs> going to say I was going to say you can feed your children, but... Uh, yeah. No, 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 no. No, the kids it's will good, even call. It's okay. good enough. It's smooth, you know. But, the tourist. But the other one, the other one is darker, slightly more oily, you see, and, and thicker, in my opinion, a little bit more cured, you see. Mm-hmm. It actually, even the, the fat, the fat is, is not really, really unhealthy, you see. You place it on your tongue and it just does this wonderful little massage almost. Totally. Actually, we don't even order bread. I like to eat it with my fingers. It's sort of designed to be with your fingers. That's a way to do it. That's true. I think part of it is the art of cutting it. I understand you've got the the ham hock is is on a vice. What what do we call this thing that... Jamonero. A jamonero. And then artfully... The waiter or the expert will cut well, it. Or what you're it, at home. <laughs> or at home, if you've got one at home. Everybody uh, has one hamonero at home. What's, what's the art of cutting the ham hock? Well, to cut it, you have to cut it very slowly, very thin, and you, you shouldn't break the fibers of the meat. So it's very difficult. In fact, if you, for example, in a wedding reception, you have to hire a very good hamonero Hamon cutter. You hire a ham cutter. And they, the good the ones, they make good money. Because those those men are the ones, that, you know, those are specific professional people that they really know how to cut ham and cheese. 
you know, right. and they are in a special section, you know, just showing because they obviously like to show to right. everyone, you know, the way they do it. You know, they look like fiddlers. You know, they really, they it's really. Right. I went to a fine restaurant in mm. Cordoba, and the guy reminded me of a fiddler, and totally. he was cutting that ham hock with a with a, with a very long and thin knife, you know. And the, the secret is to make that thin, thin carpaccio, what we call yeah. actually. Come on, why not that Italian word? You see that thin slide of ham, you know. And they are masters. I mean, not everyone is is really able to do that. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking ham in Spain, jamón, and we're joined by Federico Garcia Barroso from Madrid and Francisco Glaria from Pamplona. Is there an art of matching the local cheese with the ham? Does that, is that considered a, a good, in Italy they would say, a good marriage? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean just take a good manchego cheese from yeah. the land of La Mancha, Don Quixote. Mm. Take one of those uh, hams from Jabugo and Ooh. take a good glass of wine of Rioja or Rivera and it's all done. That's a dinner. And then you That's a have dinner. It. I can see right there some manchego, some jamón ibérico. The biggest problem is that you start, oh, just a little bit of ham, oh, a little bit more. Oh, God, a little bit more. And suddenly you see the bone. It's like, I've ate it all. <laughs> Bocadillo is the word for sandwich. sandwich. But mm. It's a sort of a standard thing. You want a quick, easy meal, you can go to a bar and ask for a bocadillo jamón. Mm-hmm. Is it worth paying for? I mean, you can get a simple jamón serrano bocadillo. Exactly. And that's just fill the tank. Totally. But you could have a gourmet sandwich if you go for mm. the top-end jamón. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, for us, bocadillo, when we say a bocadillo, it's going to be with what you call French bread. Right. Okay, mm-hmm. and you do not want to have a sandwich bread. Okay? Oh, no, no, you've got to have the French bread. And that's that feeling I get because I actually get my the upper part of my mouth roughed up. It becomes a little bit sore in a beautiful way. Yeah, it, it becomes sore, and then the ham is going to cure, it's going to help you with that. So it's like the perfect. It's perfect because your teeth crash through the, the crusty French bread crust, mm. and then you, you reach... Heaven. Heaven, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enjoying a little jamón on the radio here with our friends Federico Garcia Barroso from Madrid and Francisco Gloria from Pamplona. And I think when I go back to Spain, the first thing I'm going to do is find some little bar and ask for, not a sandwich, but a little tapa with jamón ibérico. Perfecto. Bien. <laughs> gracias. Muchas gracias. Gracias a ti. The radio section of ricksteves.com includes a link for sending us a souvenir haiku about your travels. Here's some new ones our listeners have sent us that we thought you might enjoy. Stephanie Varnador from Renton, Washington, has a few words of advice for camping in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest in southern Washington state during the long rainy season in the Pacific Northwest. In Gifford Pinchot, rain. Listen, talk, laugh, love, Read, sleep, rain, go east for sun. Kim Dahl of Chicago observes how today's rail travel options represent a Japanese variation on the theme of yin and yang. Swish of bullet train. All aboard, Japan flies by. Calm modernity. And Claudia Mulcahy of Carlsbad, California, shares this thought about making time for a family vacation. Took mom to Norway. Best to travel while she can. Me, never wiser. The long, dark winters of Norway make for some distinctive culinary traditions. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, we explore the comfort foods of Scandinavia, and later we make time for dessert in Italy as well. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that knowing even just a little bit of a new language can help take down barriers so your trip can be truly memorable. Helping people learn language for more than 20 years, it's now available on smartphones and tablets. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. The cost of living makes it expensive to eat out in the Scandinavian countries. So what should you expect to eat when you're in Sweden or Norway or Denmark? Your options vary from Europe's top-rated experimental Nordic cuisine in Copenhagen to the fish and game that get rural northerners through the long, cold winter. The great variety of comfort food and drink in Scandinavia sometimes requires a little explanation. So we're joined now by Jena Clausen from Denmark, Osa Danielsen from Sweden, and Paul Johansson from Norway. Jena, Osa, and Paul, thanks for being here. Tusen tack. Tack så mycket. 
So now when you're uh, serving up a big meal, what distinguishes it to make it Danish when you're having uh, guests over at a traditional Danish farmhouse? Jena. Well, I, I think one of the most important things for hospitality in Denmark is that you serve a, a traditional Danish lunch. And uh, just remembering that traditional doesn't always mean that it tastes good. It just means that for whatever reason, this is what people had to eat way back when. <laughs> and so one of the things that we eat, at, we start off a Danish lunch with uh, pickled herring. Uh-huh. And I don't know that I would necessarily eat pickled herring if I wasn't a Dane or I wasn't a Scandinavian. <laughs> it just means that, you know, we have the luxury here to eat fresh fish sometimes. If we have to go a step down, we go to frozen fish. And then a step further down is pickled. And then if you must, then you have the Norwegian lutefisk, which uh, you have to kind of uh, so that's uh, soak a good, in lye. Okay, so we're going to have a traditional meal, and it's going to have a reminder built in about the hardships of our grandparents, perhaps. Exactly. So and you'll have your pickled herring in Denmark. I consider that a hardship, yes. I consider it a hardship when my parents uh, force-fed <laughs> me that to make me a true Dane. But I actually do like it now. Herring, okay. So herring and rye bread, uh, you have a liver pate, and you have uh, some other traditional dishes. It could be dessert as well. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but you mentioned the Norwegian uh, food of remembering your forefathers' suffering. Paul, talk about that. Is there something in Norwegian cuisine that you eat because you're Norwegian or you eat because your parents want you to know that life used to be very <laughs> tough and it's going to be tough for you too. Well, I think certainly that the Norway is out of the three Scandinavian countries is the country with the, the, the strangest the dishes. Okay, certainly what would Well, due to the long winters and uh, low access to food, people had to find different ways to preserve it. They put it into lye, caustic soda, which became a lutefisk. So that would be... Codfish? Um, what, yeah, what, codfish. So you take the cod and you have to preserve it somehow, so yep. you soak it in lye. You marinate it. Mar- that sounds, sounds better. better, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway you do it, it's going to be lutefisk. And then you have, for example, the gravlax, which is salmon that they dug down. and you have Dug the, down, meaning they buried the salmon? Yeah, they buried the salmon. So really? That, so, so it's kind of like in, in Iceland, they would bury a shark. Yeah, it's the same. Similar thing. We bury it, the salmon. So yeah. it rots in a more edible way. The gravlax doesn't rot, but uh, in the inland areas in the middle of Norway, you have something, it's called the rakfisk, which is a fermented trout. <laughs> so it, it doesn't need to be saltwater fish to be miserable. You no, can take a you can freshwater, take a freshwater fish, fish as well. And let it ferment and yeah, then and eat it. It has a very uh, strong taste to it. Um, personally, I have a quite a complicated relationship to that dish. How but, so? But Tell I, me about your complicated relationship with the fermented trout of the center of Norway. The thing is that this, this kind of food, if you're an adult in Norway, you're sort of expected to eat it during uh, Christmas, for example. So uh, I always sample uh, a little bit of it. Uh, just sort of during... like saluting the flag. Yeah, yeah. You, it's just something you have to do. And you then know, part of your Pledge of Allegiance is fire water, isn't it? As well. Uh, we have something, it's called uh, aquavit, uh-huh. which is a potato liquor. It probably makes the fermented fish go down easier. <laughs> it does, it does. <laughs> we'll talk more about Agavit in a moment, but I want to go to Sweden now. And Osa, when you think about something that would be quintessentially Swedish, would it be stinky and rotten, or would it be something that's a little more delightful for the children? Well, we have it all. We have the stinky and rotten, and we have the pickled herring. But the Swedish dish is, is of course, the Swedish meatballs oh, okay. with the lingonberry jam on the side. That's very typical to eat with your meat to eat something sweet and sour. That's very typically so the lingonberry Swedish. Mm-hmm. with the Swedish meatball and uh, Swedish pancakes also come with lingonberry. No, not with lingonberry. That would come with the raspberry. With raspberry. raspberry but, you know, jam. in America, mm-hmm. I believe when we go to a restaurant and have Swedish pancakes, it comes with lingonberry. Well, that's an American <laughs> invention then. <laughs> really? I didn't know that. So that <laughs> next time I order my Swedish <laughs> pancakes, I will say, excuse me, this should be with meatballs. Exactly. And okay. I, I'd also like to add that uh, the Swedes, they're so famous for these meatballs. But uh, in Norwegian, we have something much better. And it's called meat cakes <laughs> and they're bigger than the meatballs like four times bigger and a lot more juicy chutkaka so, yeah chutkaka chutkaka yeah, that's good my Rich. grandma gave me yeah, chutkaka it's a different shape <laughs> <laughs> that's true it is a different shape a chutkaka is like a big fat sauce, uh, sausage patty 
It is it like is. a hamburger, it's like a, a hamburger, it's a hamburger kind basically. of. Yeah, but in but Sweden we, we've got these beautifully round meatballs. But we also have uh, when we um, serve the flat meatballs, so to speak. We mm-hmm. we have those too. We serve them with the uh, the onion sauce and so. So, so you call them Norwegian hockey pucks? <laughs> <laughs> we call, actually call them beef. So it's beef. quite yeah beef beef okay. But uh, one thing that is very traditionally Swedish and, and Norwegian, because it has to do with the, our big forests and our mountains, mm-hmm. is game food, reindeer, moose, or different kinds of... of That's of right. Game. I think the Swedish cuisine would mirror the terrain, where yeah. in Norway there's, there's just more fjords and, and, and more difficult yeah. shoreline and, mm. and more desperate people looking for something that's edible. <laughs> in, <laughs> in Sweden, you've got vast forests. Yeah. So you've got hunting, you've got berries, you've got mushrooms, exactly. all of this. Exactly. That's very, very typically. We uh, spend the, the autumns going out berry picking and mushroom picking to dry the mushrooms and, uh, and to make the jam out of the berries. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Scandinavian cuisine. We're joined by Paul Johansson from Norway, Osa Danielsson from Sweden, and Jena Clausen from Denmark. Here from the United States, looking over at Scandinavian cuisine, a lot of times, especially, I guess, Norwegian cuisine, the joke is it's all just white. It's just boring. You know, it's just a, a carrier for spices, maybe, mm. but the, the food itself is... My grandma used to always feed me fiskeballer. Fiskeballer, yeah. White, white fish balls. I was raised on fiskeballer and, fiskeballer. Ch- and chatkakir. <laughs> <laughs> fish balls and meat cakes. Yeah. But now, Scandinavian cuisine is sort of coming into its own, and, and it's sort of trendy. Uh, Jena, I think in Denmark, is one of the very best restaurants in the world. Um, I think it has been voted for a number of years, Noma, as the best restaurant in the world. And basically what it is, new Nordic cuisine, a new Danish cuisine, is that you are hyper-local in what you eat. So you go out to the beach and you find out what what kind of things are out on the beach. And it may be... uh, an interesting grass they taste. It might be all of these microclimates. If the wind is in the west, then on the other side of the hill, there'll be a special mushroom. There will be a special grass that can be eaten as a salad. And that is something that is very special to Scandinavia right now. It may be uh, on the downside. It may be retreating. It's not quite as popular. I think mm-hmm. it's been very popular for the past five, six years, mm-hmm. and it has really put Scandinavian cuisine on the map. So again. this is new Nordic cuisine distinguished by hyper-local ingredients. That's right, and also hyper-seasonal eating. You only eat what's in season, and wow. you only eat what's in season right around that restaurant or right around where you live. Also. And it's very experimental as well. Yeah, it's talk about that. It's very experimental because they can <laughs> even put in one or two little ants in there. In mm-hmm. that, uh, <laughs> and charge a lot of money for it at Noma. Yes, right. exactly. You yeah. have to get a reservation six months out or something at I, Noma. You know, I have actually never been, uh, I have never been able to presume that I could afford to go to <laughs> Noma. But I actually went to the restaurant that was started by the sous chef at Noma that's very close to where my family lives in Denmark mm-hmm. at, a, at an 11th century castle. And the sous chef from Noma had started a restaurant there. And it was the same kind of thing where in this old castle garden, they had revived the old herb garden from 800 years ago and found herbs that they didn't even know existed. So that is part of the you know, the source of many of the herbs and the grasses and that so on. That are really indigenous to indigenous Denmark. Indigenous to that area. Osa, I was just in Stockholm and I was very impressed by the trendy restaurants in Södermalm. Mm. That's the trendy bohemian chic yeah. kind of zone. Young area. Talk about mm-hmm. the, the young hip cuisine in, in Stockholm because it really is something that takes people by surprise. Wow, this is really good food and there's a very good vibe and a, a buzz about it, you know? Mm, it is. I think one thing that uh, distinguishes the people of Scandinavia or the Swedes in this case is that we are very open to different kinds of of food. We have actually been said to be the most flexible people that are most open to try new things. One of these things are new new flavors, new food. So we also like to experiment a lot and mix different food cultures. And I found that a lot of fusion cuisine in Scandinavia was just, in Stockholm, was so creative and so fun-loving, and I just looked forward to going out to dinner every night. Osa Danielsson from Stockholm, Paul Johansson from Oslo, and Danish-born Jena Clausen 
are treating us to the comfort foods and culinary traditions of Scandinavia right now on Travel with Rick Steves. So I find a big, a big part of eating in Sweden, if you're there at a certain time of year, is the crayfish festival. And everybody's crazy about these crayfish. Can you explain that? Absolutely. It's uh, one of the traditions of the year. We have a lot of different seasonal traditions in Sweden, and every tradition comes with its own food. And the crayfish festival is in August. That's when you meet, go together uh, with your friends, uh, typically out uh, to your summer house, and you're sitting outdoors, and you're sitting under lamps, uh, it's August night. It's starting to get darker. The summer nights in June and July are much lighter, but now it starts to get darker. So you have candles uh, in the trees and everyone wears silly hats with crayfish motifs on. <laughs> and you are sitting at a long table. You're basically eating a lot of uh, cheese and bread and things like that and a big pile of crayfish, red crayfish that are only available to buy in the stores during the season. Some people go out and fish them on their own, and they're only, you're only allowed to fish them during these so months. So it sounds like a social time and just a great way to celebrate August when Absolutely. you're with friends. Absolutely, the late, late summer. Paul. We have something similar in, uh, in Norway in, in autumn as well, uh, when we have the season for eating sheep. We have a very uh, popular dish in, in Norway. It's called for i kol, which means sheep in cabbage. And it's basically just, sheep. as it says, sheep in cabbage. <laughs> and that would be a festival in the fall. <laughs> that is, that's a festival in the fall when we get together and, and we eat sheep in cabbage. Now, <laughs> traditionally, when you go to Norway, uh, a lot of Americans who have Norwegian heritage, they, they know about lefse mm-hmm. and they know about yetost, mm-hmm. goat cheese. Can you talk about lefse and yetost? Well, uh, yetost, or, or brown cheese, as we call it. Is, it looks uh, like earwax. <laughs> but it tastes oh, better. It tastes it's much better. better. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice and sugary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is. It's like peanut butter, it's I a, think. It's a yeah, bit sweet, yes. It's a cracker. It's yeah. quite nice. The thing is that in, in Norway, we have something, it's called the matpakke, which is a food package. Mm-hmm. And so every day uh, for uh, 15 years, my mother would make me a, a food package before I went to school. Oh, your little lunch pail. Yeah, my little lunch pail. And uh, on this uh, open-faced sandwich, she would put a slice of uh, brown cheese. Goat cheese. Goat cheese, which, of course, when uh, by the time of lunch, would be kind of uh, sweaty in a way. <laughs> and, <laughs> and there was no variation here. So this was every pretty day much you had what, your goat what cheese I had, sandwich. had for every day, yeah. I love uh, that when I go to Norway. And then you have the, the lefse, which yeah. is um, sort of like a tortilla in a way. Yeah. And uh, you have different kinds of, of lefse. It's like potato bread, isn't it? Potato bread, yeah. Uh-huh. But they are, they are different from the east to the west. You can put uh, just butter and sugar and cinnamon on them. Mm. But you can also put uh, head cheese. Oh, head cheese. Yeah, during Christmas we put head cheese and mustard. Or uh, we put uh, some Christmas sausage and mustard on the lefse. I think I'll go for the butter and cinnamon <laughs> and, uh, and sugar. Jena from Denmark, there's a concept in Denmark that I just love, uh, you know, hugli, that coziness, that conviviality, that, mm-hmm. that intimacy. Mm-hmm. Is that unique to Denmark, would you say? I think it is unique to Denmark in many ways. It probably originates there, but it's that sense of being content or contentedness and it usually includes, it's very hard to hugesai by yourself. You know, you can't really be hugely by yourself. It usually involves other people. And not just other people, but food and drink, and sometimes lots of it. So this is eating, drinking together, enjoying uh, the magic evening hours. The magic uh, evening with a lit candle, or candles. And when I go into a small town, I see lit candles behind the windows, and I see people having a convivial cozy time together. Yes. And it's so much more than just cozy. It's this sense of being content and being What is the Danish happy. word again? We say hugli. Hugli. Osa from Sweden and Paul from Norway. Is that a, a distinction about Denmark or did they just grab the word first? Are they better at hugli? Well, they, they certainly use the word a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's... That does mean that they are better at it. But uh, we actually have a, a word uh, that we use in Norway as well. And what is that? And that is uh, kuseli. Kuseli? Yeah. yeah. Or, or kuseseg. 
okay. which means to have it cozy. To have it cozy. Yeah. yeah. In Osa, in, uh, mysigt in Sweden. Okay. Mysa, mysa. So you have to cozy your, your yourself. All oh, right. So we have three versions. But the Danes use that word a lot, hugly. Yeah. And it's a nice thing when you're traveling in Denmark, even in the big city, you notice this hugliness. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Scandinavian cuisine. We're joined by Paul Johansson from Norway, Osa Danielsson from Sweden, and Jena Clausen from Denmark. Ah, just talking about all the Scandinavian food makes me want to travel back up to Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. And in each country, I believe, there is this uh, enthusiasm for the fire water. Can each of you tell me just a little bit about the akavit or the brandy? Yeah, the akavit. So uh, you find the akavit in all the three Scandinavian countries. Uh, but of course, each country will claim to have the best. So what's the Norwegian akavit all about? We have uh, one special akavit, uh, which is called the linja akavit. And um, this is a potato liquor. And after it has been distilled, uh, they put it onto oak barrels. They put the barrels onto a ship, and they send the ship across the equator and back again. So it gives a special flavor from to the, the aquavit. From yeah, the barrel. from the barrel and okay. from, from the movements of the ship and from the salt. Gotcha. Osa, in Sweden, what kind of uh, fire water would you have? Well, we have the snaps, all sorts of different snaps. Snaps. Is that yes. essentially the same as aquavit? Yes. And that yes. means literally the water of life. Yes, it does. We tend to put different herbs in it. And I think the thing that distinguishes Swedish tradition concerning aquavit most is the w- how we drink it. Because uh, we all do the cheering, uh-huh. skål. But in Sweden, we have the snap songs. We have hundreds and hundreds of different snap songs. So one party, Swedish party, whether it's the midsummer or the crayfish party or for Christmas, it's all along sing-along uh, festivity. Snap yes. songs, that's great. Yes. Now, Jena, in Denmark, you have uh, a passion for the skull, and there's a, a proper way to do it. Can we close our discussion with you just leading us in a good Danish toast? Absolutely. So what we do, again, is we raise our glasses, and this would be the small uh, shot glasses. We raise them no higher than our eyebrow, and then we make quick yet meaningful eye contact with the people around the table and say, skull. Skål. Skål. And then we have a sip. Mm, good. And then mm. we say skål again and quick yet meaningful Skål. eye contact. Skål. 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 And it looks like our Norwegian and Swedish friends know just how to do this properly. And, and we that, don't necessarily clink the glasses. No. Exactly. But we mm. do enjoy a little sip and the togetherness exactly. of good people yes, we do. at the same table. Jena, Osa, Paul, Tusen Tak. Skål. 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 And how do you say good appetite in Norwegian? God appetit. In Swedish? Smaklig måltid. In Danish? Velbekommen. Velbekommen. <laughs> tak. Tak. Tusen tak. Don't get up from the table just yet. Up next, we'll get acquainted with the delightful after-dinner customs you'll find in Italy. And Sasha Martin shares the story behind her family's global table adventure and the healing power of preparing a good meal. That's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Not only does dinner in Europe start much later than it usually does in the U.S., but in countries like Italy, it promises to be a multi-course highlight of your evening. By dessert time, the table often resembles a cityscape full of glasses and dishes from what you and your table mates have been enjoying. For a look at the delightful after-dinner customs of Italy, we're joined a tavola by Caterina Moore. She's a former restaurateur who now specializes in guiding visitors around Italy. And... Stacy Gaboni is an American-born artist and tour guide who lives in Venice, where her husband runs a restaurant in Canareggio. Stacy and Caterina, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Buongiorno. So in Europe, especially in Italy, a slow meal is a good thing. There's, there's no attempt to turn the tables. I, I mean, Stacy. I don't think there's you, anything you, you other than a slow a meal in, yeah. in, in Italy. I've never experienced one that went fast unless I was by myself. So it's a, it's a convivial social it's, experience. It's an absolute social time. I think by the time you're licking off that last 
piece of sauce of your plate, you're starting to talk about what you're having for lunch tomorrow. So, che cosa facciamo per pranzo? And your husband, Domenico, runs a, a delightful restaurant in Venice, uh, Ristorante Bentigodi. And does he ever talk to you about, we need to turn the tables more? To, Never. To get more, Absolutely more gross not. income? Never. In America, that would be a, a bottom line issue. It's not really a good business decision, I would say. But it wouldn't we're, work in Venice, <laughs> would you? I mean, it, we, it's not in his character to want people to leave. As a matter of fact, he yeah, he wants you to stay and keep talking, and yeah. perhaps he'll sit down and join you at the end of your meal. In fact, I've found that in, one of my favorite things is after the, basically all the the people who've who've uh, enjoyed their meal, most of them are gone. There's a few people sitting there; they've been enjoying the local wine, and the chef comes out and he <laughs> wants to play. Absolutely, because he's all frisky and over, and you know, let, let, let loose. He's, he's, he's not he's under gonna, stress. And <laughs> exactly. It must, it must be gratifying for the chef to come out and, and hang out with the people mm. who just spent four mm. hours enjoying his cooking. And Venice, you meet people from all over the world. It's a fantastic, you know, I love that. sharing uh, of culture. Katerina Moore, to me, a lot of people will assess a restaurant early in the evening and it'll look touristy. And then they'll go back later on, a different mm. atmosphere. If the restaurant is filled with Italians, uh, you certainly know that they will be there at the end of the evening. And you could drop in at 8 o'clock and it's filled with Americans, come back at 10, and all of a sudden it's filled with Italians because they will eat later, as exactly. is the case in Europe. Now, when you think of all the dimensions to uh, a fine Italian dinner, after you, most people would think the dinner's over, what are some of the things that might be coming out after that? Well, you definitely are going to have a fruit course. Uh-huh. That's very important because something light and refreshing after you've had this incredible meal. And on the menu, there's a whole section, and it just says frutta. Exactly. Okay, what else might you have, Stacey? Formaggio, uh, cheese. You could have maybe the cheese before the fruit, however. And if I have some wine left over, I'm not ready for the sweet dessert yet. No, let's have let's a little, have more, a little, uh, little parmigiano. Little more, uh, different Italian cheeses, and then you might have more cheese than wine, so you got to order some more wine. And one thing leads to another, and exactly. that is a lot of fun. <laughs> and then you get into uh, the desserts, and, and you might complement that with some sweet wine. Absolutely. So there's a wine that's going to go with each course, and that's the beauty, because you're going to have this full experience and fabric of life. And it's almost as if the meal itself is imitating our life experience. So you've got your your sweet wine, uh, Vinsanto. Vinsanto, yeah. Uh, Stacy, talk about a Vincent. Well, it's pretty popular in Venice because we've got these fantastic biscotti that come from Morano, uh, from Burano, excuse me. Uh, and the biscotti are the little, um, just delightful. Butter, the, the richest butter cookies I've ever inhaled in butter my life. Cookies. Yes, and you've got the S or the, the circle, and they dip those. You dip and, it into the little yes, ones. I try not to. And there's there's nothing uh, that's completely Addictive. acceptable. It's absolutely acceptable and a delicious way to end the meal. It's almost a ritual. Yes. Be careful of ordering dessert and accepting biscotti and Vincento because really, it's then breakfast time. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and, and if you're not ready to go yet, there's what else do we have? We've got digestivo. Digestivo, cafe corretto. Talk about Abs- that a little bit. So a digestivo is is so much part of the tradition, and an American might say, wow, I'm feeling a bit full. But an Italian will say, oh, absolutamente, you need to have a digestivo. This is exactly the perfect finish to the dinner for you, and you must try it. And a digestivo, what is a digestivo? Well, they might slap a nice uh, bootleg and smelling (laughs) garapa in front of you, and you think, oh, no, how am I ever going to get that (laughs) down my throat? (laughs) And you'll manage. (laughs) And you'll manage, and and they're right. It works. It literally helps you digest this wonderful meal you've just had. So you feel like you just ate half of uh, Venice, (laughs) and then they bring out these little fire waters. Exactly. And it kind of... And they offer them to you. And if, if you're having a good time and if you've, you've gone through all of these courses with the restaurant, what about the price? Do you talk about the price for these things? Do you for these extra the, things? I, yeah. Oftentimes at the end of a, a lovely full meal, mm-hmm. uh, the restaurant will bring a little uh, finish for you, a little digestivo, yeah. just a small little thimble of chef. it. On the chef, yeah. yeah. It's I pretty common. So. It's pretty common in and Italy. I have these images of just sitting back and, you know, loosening my pants a bit and then enjoy, marveling at how many friends I've got at the table and how much fun we've had, how much time has gone by. Exactly. And how much is on the table right now in the way of just reminders of all the things we have consumed, liquid and solid. And then it's time for a cup of coffee. A coffee. And, and you know, I think a lot of us Americans, we don't we don't generally drink coffee at 11 p.m., but it's absolutely acceptable to do that. And a little cafe corretto with a little shot of Sambuca in your espresso. Or a touch popular. of grappa. A or a little touch grappa. of grappa in, in your espresso. Yeah. In your espresso. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, Just a touch. Now, you call that cafe corretto? Corretto. Does that mean correct? It's, yeah, corrected so coffee, So I want my right? coffee and corrected. I want it correct. <laughs> 
Corrected coffee. Corrected. So yeah, not just, just, a, a, yeah, a, just a shot slightly, of espresso. Slightly better that way, yes. right? But you pop in a little bit of the local fire water. Mm, exactly. Wow. So you, Stacy and Katharina, you've enabled us to essentially double the joy of a fine meal in Italy. Yeah, don't forget those extra Grazie. details at the By end of the night. how to stretch out the experience and hang out long enough to actually get to give the chef a nice mille grazie. Mille grazie. Mille grazie. Mille grazie. Del, how do you say? It was so delicious. Is there, is delizioso. there a fun way to say? Is delizioso. Delizioso. Grazie. Sfizioso. And what is that? That's just like the most delicious flavor, sfizioso. And Stacey Gaboni, how could you give the ultimate compliment for the food in Italian? Oh, well, there's always the grazie chef at the end. You oh, know, a little yeah. round of applause. I think my husband... Bravo, bravo, bravo. <laughs> it's hard work to be back in the kitchen and it hearing is. all that fun conviviality. And, and, and I guess another note would be don't refuse the chef if he offers you a digestivo. Just accept it. You don't, you know, if you don't want to drink that bootleg okay. grappa, then you just push it to the side, but accept it. Chefs right? are, I was going to say, famous, yeah. I get even notorious for bringing see, one extra see, inning out. Or putting the bottle on the table or something like that. Culturally acceptable. Embrace that difference that we might have. I'm so excited. I want to go back and do it again. <laughs> Stacey Gavoni and Katrina Moore, thank you so much and bon appetito. Bon appetito. Bon appetito. Grazie, Eric. Even if you can't afford to run off to Italy for dinner, you can turn supper time in your own home into a global table adventure. A while back, Travel with Rick Steves listener Sasha Martin in Tulsa told us about her resolution to prepare a meal for her family from every country in the world. That's 195 countries in 195 weeks. And she did it in alphabetical order. She's back with us to share more of the motivation for her stovetop travels, which she shares in her book called Life from Scratch. Sasha, thanks for being with us. So happy to be back, Rick. Describe what the 195 countries in 195 weeks uh, menu plan was all about. Uh, Well, you know, it started where I wanted to offer my family a taste of something a little bit different. I had a seven-month-old daughter and a picky husband, and um, I had quite a bit of wanderlust after having traveled as a youngster to 12 countries before the age of 19. So it seemed like a very logical thing for me who loved to cook and wanted to offer something unique to my family to try cooking every country in the world. So you spent nearly four years with this, and your daughter, uh, so sweet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the happy stovetop travels and putting pins on the map as you slowly and steadily eat your way around the globe. When you did this, and you've, you've finished that now, when you look back, what was your hope when you started, and how successful was that four years later? You know, I wanted to, number one, have an impact on my family and change our culture, make sure we we had an international perspective, even though we were not able to travel. But also I wanted to help other people, and that became more and more the focus as the years went by. And I really felt like we grew a nice community of people who really care about the world, who want to raise their children with, again, international perspective and with a kind thought towards other cultures first. So I feel really happy that I was able to do that. I have a lot of different ways people can either jump right in and find a recipe that sounds good, or they can go to our interactive map and look for a country. So say they're doing a project or they just are in the mood for food from Zimbabwe, then they can navigate directly to that and see what we cooked and try it in their own home. Okay, so 195 countries, uh, we don't have time to talk about all of them, but what was the last country that you visited? So it was Zimbabwe, and I decided for that one to focus, it was fall, so I decided to focus on uh, pumpkin dishes. One was a butternut squash with cinnamon, really simple, but it was kind of neat to know that they enjoy it that way there too. Mm-hmm. And then there was acorn squash with, uh, you fill with corn and top it with cheese and roast it. Really, really good. We make that one all the time. In fact, my five-year-old makes it for me, and all I have to do is pop it in the oven. <laughs> ah, nice. Yeah, and then another one is a peanut butter that goes into the squash. And you can make it with anything from um, butternut squash to pumpkin or what have you. But mixing in that peanut flavor is very typical of sub-Saharan Africa. Now, that seems like kind of a surprising or an odd flavor match, uh, pureed peanut butter and squash. Was that common that you would stumble onto surprising matchups? Oh, yeah. That, that's part of the joy of the project is when you realize it doesn't have to be this, you know, 28-ingredient 
four-hour-long process. I definitely have recipes like that, too, that are perfect for celebrations. Right. But this was, you know, it's just something I could do on a Monday night if I wanted to give something yeah. a little bit different with extra protein. You mentioned how you created a community out of this. Tell us about the finale of your Global Table Adventure. That sounded like quite an event. Oh, yeah. And um, so what I did, again, with the emphasis of trying to help other people experience the world in the way that we did, is I spoke to different people in the Tulsa community and said, what if we did this in Tulsa in one day? And it was amazing. People said, yes, let's do it. And I I kind of was taken aback because I didn't think that was going to happen. But um, the museum, Philbrook Museum, donated the space. I mean, 17 chefs came together making 10 to 20 recipes each and put food from 177 countries in one big lobby area. I think almost 500 people ate for free, just donated canned food to the Oklahoma Food Bank. And it was so beautiful to see these, especially the children who had never been out of the state, let alone the country, try all, you know, their plates piled high with food and just talking about, oh, did you get something from over, you know, in Africa? And oh, I just got something from the South America table. And <laughs> I love it, though, you know, because my whole mission where I work is uh, helping Americans get out of our comfort zones and go see the world. But you're doing the same thing in the in the reverse, having the world come home into your home state of Oklahoma and celebrating all these cultures right there at your local museum. That's right. You know, and it's something that's that is so accessible. I can't stress enough that all you need to do is open that spice drawer. Sasha Martin is the author of Life from Scratch, a memoir of food, family, and forgiveness. And on her website, you can read how her obsession to cook from around the world for the past four years has helped her deal with her past. Sasha also provides more than 600 international recipes and even tips for school lunches from around the world at globaltableadventure.com. Now, Sasha, we've been talking about the Global Table Adventure and this book is, it, it seems like the Global Table Adventure, serving your family a different cuisine every week for 195 weeks, that's just the springboard for something really deep. Uh, how is life from scratch more than Global Table Adventure? I mean, right from the first uh, page in the book, you write, this is not the book I meant to write. Mm, that's right. Well, when I... I started the work with National Geographic. My editor was kind of uh, pushing me, and she said, you know, this isn't just some nice little story. It's it's not normal for somebody to go week by week obsessively cooking a meal from every country in the world for four years. And, you know, when she said it that way, I thought, you know, you're kind of right. What is going on with me? And she said, that's the story I want to hear. So I did some hard work and some serious contemplation about what what was going on beyond, you know, the picky husband and the young girl. And hmm. it all really started to go deeper and deeper into my childhood and really realizing that I was looking for my own sense of home. You know, in cooking these countries, I was to f- trying to figure out where I belonged. And, uh, you know, I had a quite difficult childhood. And so cooking the world was a little bit of a walking meditation, trying to work that out. So you write that food can help you heal. How can the foods of other cultures heal a damaged childhood or a broken heart? Well, for me, you know, if I go back and think about the earliest part of my life, we were always coming together around the kitchen table in a very, not just a sort of a nice, happy way, but in the fact that that was the only place for us to come together. My brother and I, we slept in the living room. We didn't have a bedroom. And I never felt poor, but my mother was on welfare. And when we came together in the kitchen that way, it was uh, it was just a time of, of healing where everything was okay. And she made international food, of course, which was the biggest inspiration for the around the world eating adventure for me. You know, she was trying to create foods from her Italian Hungarian background for us, even though, you know, we were we were just struggling. Um, she didn't let money get in the way. And so we were eating chicken paprikash and, you know, rolled crepes and German tree cake, which took all day to make on a rainy day, 19 layers. And uh, she made sure we had that, that beautiful childhood we needed. She had gone to the grocery store. It was a health food store to try to buy the ingredients. And they wouldn't sell it to her because they didn't take food stamps. And she, rather than just let it go, she went home and hemmed some more pants and made sure we could get back to that store and buy that, you know, some very expensive ingredients, really. I mean, it has marzipan and um, chocolate and almonds and all these things that that do add up in price. But she made sure it could happen. And later, when I cooked the world for Germany, I made that cake. 
And it was it was at the time that my husband, who who does have some heart issues, atrial fibrillation, so he had a, a severe episode of this. And I'm trying to make this cake, which is already bringing me back into this sort of uh, memory of, of this earlier time. And I'm having to take him to the hospital um, because he can't breathe and his heart's going out. And uh, just to give you a little background, in my childhood, my, you know, I was in and out of foster homes after the age of 10, I moved in with permanent guardians and my brother, I ultimately lost. And so I have this real sense of, of things kind of escaping my control. And I think a lot of cooking the world was about finding control in an uncontrollable world. And I, you know, I didn't even realize that at the time, but when he had this heart episode and I'm taking him to the hospital and I'm just, I'm smelling the smells of when my brother was ill and I'm just, I'm totally overwhelmed with emotion. Then uh, we get home and I have to finish decorating this cake and I'm thinking, I finally understand why my mom insisted on making this cake because 19 layers, step by step, she pushed through no matter what. And, you know, sometimes that's all you can do. I, I can't control if my husband is going to have a heart attack or something like that's going to happen. But I can make this cake and I can move forward day by day. You know, Sasha, you had a brilliant editor at National Geographic that encouraged you to go deeper than just the fun of uh, broadening your picky child's palate. You also included details about being separated from your mom when you were 12 years old and then being placed in the care of guardians who took you to live for a while in Europe. It sounds to me like the healing properties of good food helped you back then also. Oh, yeah, because my mom was, you know, teaching me to love uh, the food of our heritage despite trying circumstances, but then I go with this new family away from anybody and anyone I'd ever known or loved, and I'm in this whole new world of food and, and walking through the streets of Paris totally brokenhearted, missing her, missing my brother, but yet the food is pulling me through and along. And, and, and I hope it offers other people hope that they're, whatever they're going through, that maybe food can be a pathway to healing for them as well. Sasha Martin, her book is Life from Scratch, a memoir of food, family, and forgiveness. Sasha, thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for studio help this week to KWGS Tulsa and to Gretchen Stroud for reading this week's Travel Haiku. We can email you the dates and topics of our next recording session so that you can talk with Rick and his guests. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com where it says sign up for radio news. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.